Hi everyone, Dr. David Perlmutter here. We're going to talk today uh, more about ketogenic diet, the role of ketosis. In other words, a diet that allows your body to use fat as a fuel source uh, as opposed to glucose derived from carbohydrate. But we're going to look at this from a more of a research perspective in terms of the nuts and bolts as to what uh, is going on when the body is exposed to these chemicals called ketones, which are the byproducts of utilizing fat uh, in the body uh, for energy. We're going to be talking with Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. He is at the University of South Florida. Uh, he's an associate professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at uh, USF, University of South Florida, uh, Morsani College of Medicine. He's also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, IHMC. Uh, his laboratory develops and tests nutritional strategies as well as various metabolic-based supplements for neurological disorders. In fact, you'll see that uh, he's even exploring Lou Gehrig's disease uh, through the notion of targeting mitochondrial function as it relates to that disorder. Uh, he's involved in studying uh, cancer as well as enhanced physical performance and resilience of the human body in extreme environments, especially those environments in which there is elevated oxygen and oxygen pressure. His research is supported by the Office of Naval Research, Department of Defense, as well as various private organizations and foundations. Um, really an interesting uh, individual, uh, adding a lot to our knowledge base. So let's just jump right into this interview. Well, hello, Dr. D'Agostino. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, several weeks ago, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Thomas Seyfried, and obviously yeah. uh, some really groundbreaking work that both you and he are involved in. And, you know, this kind of is an extension of the original work on um, ketosis uh, from the late 1920s as an effective treatment for epilepsy, particularly in children. More recently, the work of Dr. Mark Matson and others related to caloric restriction and its effects. But uh, why don't we start by just having you explain what it is that you do day to day and why that's interesting to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, sure. I, I was trained as a neuroscientist for my PhD uh, at Rutgers University. And I, my, the path of my research went down the road of understanding extreme environments as it pertained to uh, Navy applications. So in particular, undersea environments and, uh, and preventing oxygen toxicity seizures was really the focus of my funding. And in the process of doing that, um, you know, we, we were developing technologies that would allow us to understand uh, how the brain functions. So we had various imaging technologies to understand brain signaling. And it became very apparent that preserving brain energy metabolism was absolutely crucial for preventing seizures from oxygen toxicity. And I, I realized this before I even knew of the ketogenic diet or of its uh, clinical application for pediatric epilepsy at the time. So you so, were involved in research that uh, looked at the fact that uh, too much oxygen, as might be uh, somebody might be exposed to, for example, in hyperbarics with a higher percentage of oxygen, something that you know, we were certainly cognizant of, 
can That's induce right. seizures, but what you're saying is if you could enhance the metabolism of brain cells, that that might uh, prevent uh, or lower uh, the risk of that event from occurring. And then you came upon the idea of enhancing brain metabolism by pursuing a ketogenic diet. Yes, that's right. I was primarily looking at drugs and oxygen toxicity seizures are experienced by Navy SEALs that use a closed circuit rebreather and anti-epileptic drugs are not a very viable mitigation strategy. They're not viable for someone to take uh, prior to emission because of the impairment of warfighter performance and all the side effects associated with it. Um, so in the efforts to understand oxygen toxicity and to mitigate it, uh, we've, we went down the path of like, what do epileptic patients, uh, children with epilepsy or now even adults do when drugs fail and discovered the ketogenic diet and it's, uh, it's accepted application for drug-resistant seizures. And then I went down the path of doing ketogenic diet research and then developing strategies that could acutely induce ketosis uh, to provide ketones to the brain for uh, neuroprotection and um, for anti-epileptic effects, and, and later actually with cancer and some of the work that I did with uh, Professor Seyfert. So you've learned then that um, a, a ketogenic program uh, is really very effective in enhancing the efficacy, how brains uh, utilize fuel in terms of efficiency, in terms of reduction of free radicals, in terms of more bang for the buck in, in that you're harvesting, uh, making ATP from fat as opposed to, to glucose. And it seems to me that in your writings that you've really uh, been able to throw a wide net now in terms of the brain in general, well beyond uh, oxygen-induced epilepsy. So what are some of the kinds of things that may, uh, you think, be areas where we could apply your findings to in terms of a more ketogenic diet? Yeah, that's uh, what's really exciting to me is that when I got into this field in 2008, uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, the group there, it was John Freeman at the time um, who who'd passed away, but his, uh, his colleague, uh, Eric Kossoff, uh, had written a book, and, and the title of the book was The Ketogenic Diet for Pediatric Epilepsy, and that was really, really one of the only books out there at the time, and it was uh, some work by uh, more of a mechanistic book by Zhang Ro. Um, delving into the mechanisms of ketones and how ketones can uh, impact uh, neuronal energy metabolism to reduce the production of oxygen-free radicals, a reactive oxygen species. And it was uh, the theory of oxygen toxicity is that there's a breakdown of cellular energy metabolism and an overproduction of oxygen-free radicals from from the oxygen itself. So we know free radical production is proportional to the level of oxygen uh, in the brain. And that was some work that I did as a postdoctoral fellow in uh, hippocampal brain slice preparation where we exposed uh, brain tissue to graded levels of oxygen and saw a proportional increase in oxygen free radicals. But what became apparent as we're studying metabolism is that uh, if you preserve brain energy metabolism there's, uh, and, and supply energy in the form of ketones, that there's proportionally less oxygen-free radicals. 
So you're getting the best of both worlds, it seems. That are being produced. Uh, energy metabolism, and at the same And that's a consequence primarily. Yeah, as, uh, at the same time, you're, you're diminishing yes. the reactive oxygen species. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, just by enhancing ATP production in, in the cells. You know, one of the uh, concerns of um, hyperbaric oxygen has always been enhancing uh, or, uh, the production of these reactive oxygen species. There's been some work that has indicated that these uh, ROS uh, actually enhance uh, activity of pathways like the NRF2 pathway uh, that actually ultimately enhances the body's production of protective antioxidants, uh, detoxification pathways, uh, and reducing inflammation as well. So it, it seems that there might be some sweet spot then, a fine line whereby we do get this epigenetic benefit while at the same time, uh, we have to be cognizant of the potential downsides. Yeah, that's right. So the therapeutic ranges of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, the limit is three atmospheres of oxygen. And when we study oxygen toxicity in the model in the lab, we actually go down pretty deep uh, to five atmospheres of oxygen, which would be 132 feet of seawater. And if you or I were exposed to five atmospheres of oxygen, it would give us a seizure in about 10 minutes. Whereas if we were in a state of deep ketosis from therapeutic fasting, the ketogenic diet, or even synthetic ketones, we could stay at five atmospheres of oxygen for like uh, an hour or more. So it's a very dramatic, and there's no anti-epileptic drugs that can actually uh, provide the same neuroprotection. Okay, then let's extrapolate, if, if it's fair to do so, uh, from the notion of protecting the brain from this artificially induced environment of uh, high atmospheric pressure oxygen toxicity uh, to more general ideas in terms of protecting the brain from free radicals, whether they're oxygen or nitrogen-based, day-to-day uh, -day with the understanding that really it is the effect of these radicals uh, long-term uh, compromising mitochondrial function that activates apoptotic pathways. What can we say to the common man then in terms of the notion of engaging ketosis as being good for the brain? Yeah, well, there's emerging data to indicate that a state of ketosis is beneficial for the brain, not just because ketones are an energy metabolite that have maybe superior bioenergetic effects as far as making ATP, but they have signaling properties that are independent of their role as an energy metabolite, and that can be uh, actually having epigenetic effects and activating genetic programs that, for example, enhance endogenous antioxidant systems. Uh, one of the studies that we did uh, at Yale University with our colleagues there, and uh, we published it in Nature Medicine about a year or so ago, was that it uh, suppressed inflammation through suppressing the NLRP3 inflammasome. And that inflammasome is tightly linked to many age-related chronic diseases, uh, autoimmune diseases. So, uh, and it's it's suppressing that inflammasome independent of its effect on metabolism. And 10 years ago, we did not uh, even understand that these energy metabolites had effects independent from energy. But it makes sense that you would, you know, want to have epigenetic regulation or suppression of inflammation uh, no, that these metabolites are linked paper, to that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were very careful to delineate 
the effects on the inflammasome of uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate versus uh, acetoacetate. Am I correct in that? Uh, yes. So beta-hydroxybutyrate had a more robust effect, a significant effect at inhibiting um, inflammation. And, it, and it's really interesting that these two ketone metabolites do, beta-hydroxybutyrate actually needs to get broken down to acetoacetate to be used as energy. Uh, acetoacetate, on the other hand, was vitally important for the uh, seizure protection. And we think acetoacetate spontaneously decarboxylates to acetone, and that can impact a potassium channel that hyperpolarizes the resting membrane potential and can suppress glutamate-associated uh, uh, excitotoxicity that's associated with, with oxygen toxicity. So it, it can get kind of complicated. I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate have similar effects on many systems, especially when it comes to exercise performance and, and maybe uh, some other pathways with neuroprotection, but they have distinct regulatory effects uh, independent of their roles as, as an energy metabolite. And that's well, really the area that our research is going in. Let me segue to uh, another area of, of your publica uh, research and your publication. You mentioned just now uh, the effects on the pathways that regulate uh, glutamate, uh, for example. And, you know, there is this glutamate hypothesis that relates to ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, that there is a deficiency of uptake of glutamate from the astrocytes and therefore higher levels of glutamate that might be responsible ultimately uh, for the neurodegenerative uh, pathway uh, in the motor system that's involved in ALS. And in fact, we'll talk about your, your study uh, looking evaluating the Deanna protocol in just a moment. But uh, So it's very interesting then that uh, when we look at research in the laboratory animal that has studied survivability uh, in and motor functionality in the ALS model of uh, the rodent model, uh, but enhanced being on a, a ketogenic diet, that you you seem to be narrowing it down then to possibly involving this glutamate toxicity uh, idea with the you know subsequent mitochondrial toxicity brought on by this NMDA stimulation by glutamate, uh, enhanced by glutamate rather with influx of uh, calcium and ultimately proving toxic to the mitochondria. Yeah, glutamate is involved in every uh, neurological disorder or neuropathology or degenerative disease that I can think of. I can't think of any that are, that are not, where you don't have glutamate-induced uh, hyperexcitability and excess stimulation of AMPA receptors, and, and also with a, a depolarization, you can also activate uh, NMDA receptors and overexcitation of NMDA receptors. Uh, can then trigger a cascade that can lead to cell death and apoptosis and things like that. Um, so energy metabolism is intimately linked to glutamate excitability simply by uh, preserving the membrane potential, which is an ATP-dependent process. And, um, and ketones and, and, you know, uh, which can come from the diet or fasting or, or a supplement is a very powerful strategy in our hands from reduced model systems, whether it be in vitro dissociated cell culture preparations, a brain slice preparation, an animal model to uh, a human patient. Ketones have been shown across the board to uh, provide 
you know, energy that can help really uh, preserve brain energy homeostasis. And that is linked to glutamate levels in the brain and glutamate homeostasis. So we, we are targeting that, you know, that's part of the, the Deanna protocol and, and many other things that we do. Uh, this is great. I, I'm loving this because, you know, over the years, we've looked upon this NMDA receptor and pharmaceutical attempts to modulate that using uh, Nemenda. Uh, and yep. now we're looking at a far more uh, physiological approach uh, to its regulation uh, and its um, transmembrane uh, issues that you mentioned in terms of influx uh, by using a ketogenic diet. Let me go back, if I could, just to emphasize for our viewers, you know, we're, we're, many are talking about beta-hydroxybutyrate as you are uh, in terms of providing a, an adequate or a superior fuel uh, uh, and its breakdown products, superior fuel for cerebral uh, metabolism. But you'd mentioned it uh, not, uh, we'll get to signal, signaling molecule in just a moment, but as an epigenetic player uh, through, I don't know if you mentioned, but it would be one of the considerations as a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Yes. So I mm -hmm. think just, you know, that really opens up uh, an, an interesting area of discussion that uh, one thing that you are doing uh, by going on a more ketogenic diet is to enhance uh, through this epigenetic pathway the expression of genes that have positive effects in terms of enhancing antioxidant coverage and reducing inflammation. So can you expound a little bit more on kind of the epigenetic role of the ketogenic approach through the actions of beta-hydroxybutyrate? Yeah, uh, it was thought for many years that, uh, you know, many of these effects of calorie restriction and therapeutic fasting uh, were kind of derived from the suppression of blood glucose and, I guess, more importantly, the suppression of the hormone insulin. And then that would, you know, kick on a variety of things. <clears throat> and autophagy is, is another thing that may or may not, are probably not influenced by ketones alone, but uh, tend to be happening. Well, we haven't shown that yet. Um, but it, it is uh, work by Eric Verdin and colleagues um, demonstrated that the ketone beta-hydroxybutyrate specifically functions as a class one and class two histone deacetylase inhibitor. And that uh, HDAC inhibitors, uh, as you know, and <clears throat> maybe your audience is aware, they are probably one of the most intensely studied class of, of drugs out there. They're used for a variety of applications uh, as anti-cancer agents. Uh, they're being studied for a broad range of, of disease pathologies. And it's remarkable that we have an endogenous metabolite that is a, a powerful uh, histone deacetylase inhibitor, <clears throat> and it works very specifically uh, in a way that's independent of its role as an energy metabolite. And, and there's ongoing research now to really figure out what pathway it's working through uh, as a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Um, and, and I think, you know, there, it's perhaps doing it through a number of, of, of pathways, but it's doing it independent of energy metabolism. Uh, and a consequence of that, uh, at least in the models that have been studied so far, is there's a, a fairly robust uh, increase in endogenous antioxidant capacity, which helps to protect the cells from uh, a variety of challenges that would otherwise uh, 
cause uh, cell death and, and inflammation and excess oxidative stress, most importantly. So it's, it's remarkable that, you know, that we have, um, you know, an endogenous metabolite that we can make via an eating regimen uh, like that advocated by Mark Matson from the NIH for years now, intermittent fasting, uh, a carbohydrate-restricted ketogenic diet, uh, and perhaps, you know, even uh, a supplemental ketones in the form of uh, ketogenic fats like medium-chain triglycerides or even ketone esters, which are being studied now. So we've talked about um, beta-hydroxybutyrate as a fuel. We've talked about it as an epigenetic player, as a gene expression a modifier. We also know that it acts uh, on G-protein receptors to, uh, as a transmembrane uh, initiator, uh, uh, influencing intracellular activity. So, um, you know, there's some positive uh, outflow of that as well. Could we look at that for just a minute? Yeah, uh, well, it's not something that we directly study in the lab, so I can't really talk uh, about our research involved in that. Uh, but, you know, I can talk more about its anti-inflammatory effects, so that's what I'm a little bit more familiar with, uh, especially its role in suppressing the NLRP3 inflammasome. But I think, you know, the, the jury's still out on its specific roles on receptors. So it may be mediating it not, not as a direct kind of ligand to the receptor, but through uh, redox control. So many, there's many proteins that are on, uh, or amino acid residues on ion channels that are uh, impacted by the redox state of the cell the oxidative reductive state. And we know that ketones have a pretty dramatic impact on that. So uh, just like oxygen, studying oxygen was, was my background in my PhD and my postdoctoral work. And many of the quote unquote oxygen sensitive systems in our body are not really sensing oxygen. They're sensing reactive oxygen species. And I think, uh, and it's been demonstrated in our lab in numerous model systems that you have a pretty profound shift in the redox state of the cell and intracellular reactive oxygen species and even extracellular, which would be hydrogen peroxide because it can permeate. Uh, you have pretty big shifts in these reactive oxygen species that impact G-coupled protein receptors. Uh, the NMDA receptor has a, a redox sensitive uh, uh, sensitivity to it, as do many of these other. So it's it's kind of, you know, a, a whole interesting field to study that it's very difficult to study it from a mechanistic standpoint. Um, but I think that may be uh, conferring some of the neuroprotective effects that we see with ketones. And I think it's an underappreciated area of research. Uh, and I say that because we're, we're kind of studying it. <laughs> and and we, just, we know the impact of it because we we do experiments where we simultaneously measure free radical production in the cells and neuronal activity with and without ketones. So we see these big redox shifts and we understand that it's, we're not just impacting metabolism, we're impacting all the, the redox sensitive pathways that are intimately linked to that uh, neuronal excitability or, or suppression of excitability. Well, I think the take-home message then uh, would be that it's a much more comprehensive picture, <clears throat> much more pervasive influence that things like beta-hydroxybutyrate have 
uh, on, uh, on regulatory systems well beyond serving just as it happens to be an efficient fuel. Yeah. This, as you would expect, though, you know, as we, as we move forward and recognize uh, that, you know, things have, uh, have roles to play across many spectra. Um, so that said, let's get back to ALS for a moment, if we can. And you had mentioned, in fact, you published a paper on the um, assessment of the Deanna protocol. Uh, I, I knew Deanna and um, her father as well uh, early on when, uh, why do you know the story? If not, I can, I can recount it. Oh, yeah, I know it pretty well. But I came in a little bit later into the story than, than you did. I think I met Dr. Tadone in maybe 2012 or 13 or 12, I believe, or maybe 2000, as early as 2011. And he described uh, this, the, you know, his, uh, the supplements that he thought were having a therapeutic effect and, and described many supplements. <laughs> and uh, so I went to the literature and just kind of to, to tease out, well, what can we, you know, extract out of what he's using that have scientific support behind it as a therapeutic agent. And we basically, you know, chose uh, a variety of supplements that had research support behind it. And we incorporated those and tested that in uh, the SFD1 G93A mouse model, which is the familial form. So Deanna has sporadic ALS uh, that's with unknown etiology, although Dr. Tadone now thinks that Lyme's disease may be part of that, and that's something that he's looking into. Uh, so we just chose to study the Deanna protocol supplements, but the Deanna protocol is kind of more comprehensive in, in what is being applied. And again, for our viewers, this is a, a general, I believe he's a general surgeon whose daughter became affected with a sporadic form of Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. And, you know, the discussion that we had years ago uh, was uh, that, you know, this is ultimately a mitochondrial event <clears throat> that ultimately triggers uh, these pathways that are involved in pre-programmed cellular death or apoptosis, uh, which are initiated, in fact, by mitochondrial dysfunction. And we were exploring, even back then, uh, the use of a ketogenic diet, extrapolating from early rodent studies demonstrating increased longevity without really fully understanding all the pathways that you were just uh, able to uh, enumerate for us. Uh, but that said, so he, you know, he uh, took it upon himself to do the literature work and come up with a protocol for his daughter and now you have actually used you know, similar uh, approach in the rodent model, and your work <clears throat> does demonstrate um, <clears throat> increased preservation of functionality as well as longevity, I believe, in the rodent model using right. an approach designed to enhance uh, mitochondrial function, which is really founded, I think, on first uh, supplying that really efficient fuel and now you know, with the understanding of the various other pathways that are being utilized by the various ketone bodies to further <clears throat> preserve uh, mitochondrial function, reduce inflammation, and enhance uh, antioxidant coverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's right. We saw an improvement in neuronal function or the neurological sc score, I should say. And, um, and there was an increase in, in motor function and which is, uh, has not been shown in a whole lot of ALS therapies that have been tested, but extension of life 
uh, that was significant, statistically significant in this ALS mouse model. That's very aggressive mouse model. Working with these mice is kind of tricky because they have many copies of the gene that result in uh, in the mutated SOD1. So it's not an, a deficiency of the enzyme; it's an overproduction of a of a mutated form that that causes it and. Uh, there, there's more copies that would probably then in the mouse model than would probably be present in the, in the human. So the, the deterioration happens very rapidly. So it, it allows kind of for a useful model to screen out and vet out various therapies that may have an effect. There is a, a bunch of research happening now looking at the microbiome in ALS patients. Uh, one study is uh, underway at MGH. And uh, interestingly, there is the thought that there uh, are certainly changes, if not a unique fingerprint uh, in the microbiome uh, that is characteristic of ALS. And it's interesting to uh, try to kind of fathom how this might relate to the discussion that you and I are having right now. And I will tell you that, you know, what we understand about uh, loss of bacterial diversity and changes in the microbiome is often a hallmark of that are changes in the ratios of the uh, short-chain fatty acids. Uh, so, uh, you know, we know that butyrate acts in many ways similar to beta-hydroxybutyrate in terms of cell signaling and also in terms of serving as a histone deacetylase inhibitor. With changes in the microbiome and changes presumably in butyrate, that might be a unifying point between the work that you're doing and the research that goes on with reference to exploring uh, the microbiome. And that said, uh, it might open the door to both uh, reestablishing a healthy uh, gut bacteria, which is not part of the Deanna protocol, as well as specifically through supplements and dietary changes targeting mitochondrial function to upregulate uh, mitochondrial uh, health and resistance to uh, uh, initiating apoptosis. So I think we're going to see a convergence of these two seemingly disparate areas. Uh, therapies for mitochondrial function and changes in gut bacteria actually sharing a similar butyrate-based mechanism. And that, I think, may open the door to some, you know, some real uh, potential for recovery for, or at least stabilization for these individuals. Yeah, that's a really good point. At the... the the fiber that's part of the diet, you know, uh, produces these short-chain fatty acids, and the colonocytes really thrive off of uh, these short-chain fatty acids, like like butyrate. And a disruption of that can impact uh, a number of processes, including the tight junctions that are associated with uh, with the barrier that that's needed. And and it's there's a very similar theme in people who get ALS is that. There, many of them are exposed to uh, an environment or a toxin or perhaps a pathogen that, and, and all these things can uh, disrupt the, uh, the gut microbiome or have links to disrupting the vascular permeability and, and, and impacting these tight junctions. So I see a, a kind of a unifying uh, theme there among at least with people contacting me and, and even within the military you tend to, uh, th these guys get moved around all over the place, and we know that our gut microbiome changes uh, in response to, you know, our geographical location. And if we're moved to multiple locations and stress at the same time, 
uh, I think that can predispose us to a number of neurological disorders, uh, including MS and ALS. Um, so that, that's been observed. But the link is very difficult to make a conclusive link because I think, I think there could be with uh, familial ALS, we know the cause, but for sp sporadic ALS, the etiology is largely unknown. And I think uh, it's really important to look at the microbiome as being part of that, yeah, uh, especially the barrier function. That the SOD model really does help us because, you know, yeah. It's clear where that lets us into the mitochondrial dysfunction. We get that. Yeah, but yeah. having said that, um, you know, as you mentioned with the uh, military individuals who are exposed to jet fuel or whatever, or uh, yeah. um, soccer players, professional soccer players in Europe, and they're exposed to pesticides on the soccer field, that there are other ways of inducing mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, and, you know, even via disruption of the microbiome that can also get you on that carousel uh, to lead to this feed-forward process, whether it's inherited or otherwise. So I think um, it, it still allows us to, as you say, use that SOD model in a very effective way because it's much more rapid and defined. This is our yeah. problem, and how do we go about fixing it? Now, there was a study, I believe, back in 2005 in the journal Neurology that looked at a ketogenic, a hyperketogenic diet in treatment of Parkinson's patients, humans, mm -hmm. yeah. and demonstrated really uh, a profound uh, improvement on the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale uh, in the various uh, parameters that were looked at in terms of uh, medication response, uh, mobility, etc. cetera, uh, really pr profound changes that rivaled medica mm -hmm. rival medication even to this day. Why is there such a pushback in clinically relevant uh, journals uh, to explore, you know, I wouldn't even say embrace, but to explore the utility of a, a ketogenic a diet, for example, in the neurodegenerative conditions. Why such reluctance? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, especially uh, in regards to cancer too, you know, which is an area that we study. Uh, but the the one study that you mentioned with Parkinson's disease patients, I, I know that one of the authors very well, uh, Dr. Uh, Theodore uh, Van Italy, and I believe he's uh, in his late 90s, mid to late 90s now. Uh, and I talked to him and various colleagues of his uh, that are trying to advance this idea of nutritional ketosis as being therapeutic in many ways. Um, but with Parkinson's disease and, and other diseases like Alzheimer's disease, I think there's a major emphasis from at least the funding agencies like National Institutes of Health and even uh, the Alzheimer's Association, although they did fund a ketogenic diet study uh, with, with a mouse model, uh, there's a big emphasis on a magic bullet and, you know, and targeting tau and targeting uh, amyloid plaques and creating antibodies that can prevent the accumulation of these uh, plaques and tangles that, that we see. And that's where, and that's where the, the research is, is really going, whereas um, research with nutrition is just a little less tangible and there's just not uh, a lot of support in mainstream medicine for nutritional interventions, uh, for treatment, or you know, probably most importantly, prevention. That, there's just not uh, 
the support is not there from the funding agencies. And I think that is part of it, right? Because the National Institutes of Health really fund the research that get high visibility uh, in the academic system. So, and that's where top tier researchers are expected to get NIH funding to develop and maintain the research program. And if there's not funding available from the NIH to do basic science and, and clinical uh, science uh, with nutrition, then that becomes a problem because it becomes difficult to validate. And even running a clinical trial uh, with the ketogenic diet, it's quite difficult for these things because you have to get uh, a clinician who understands the ketogenic diet, which is sometimes difficult. You, you need to get uh, dietitians. Uh, many of them don't understand the diet in a way that they could get patients to comply. So they need to get uh, a nutrition dietetic team to work with the patients. And then the patients have to comply. And the institute has to be uh, welcoming to the idea of using this as a therapy for, for these diseases. And on top of that, the uh, IRB, the Institutional Review Board, the Ethics Committee has to approve it. <laughs> so you have many, not just the funding, but you have many different hurdles uh, to make this happen. And I think that limits the amount of quality, uh, high-impact peer-reviewed publications that come out to support uh, the ketogenic diet as a, a valid metabolic therapy. Well, we in clinical medicine, I think, are all, uh, you know, gun-shy of the word uh, ketosis. Uh, that you know, too. <laughs> you know, up in the middle of the night dealing with a diabetic and ketoacidosis, you know, that would be about yeah. the worst thing you could imagine. And yet, uh, it's, it's, it's so unfortunate that that experience uh, is it, the tag-along with the whole notion of ketosis being a very positive experience. So, um, I just want to applaud you for the great work that you're doing. I mean, it's, this is the foundational work that, uh, you know, those of us who are involved in looking at interventional types of uh, medicine uh, really, really need to, to be able to hold up and say, here's why. Uh, you know, here's why we recommend uh, for an ALS patient a ketogenic diet. I mean, there's no downside. And here's the potential upside. Here's at least what the animal research shows. So, uh, I want to uh, thank you for uh, for my uh, for me as well as for all of our viewers for all of your great work and I want to encourage you that there are a lot of us out there who are following you and who desperately depend on every every bit of work that you do all the work that you do is uh, you know is really again very supportive of open-minded clinicians who are willing to go ahead and make these changes in recommendations to patients so thanks. Thank you for giving me this platform to speak. And uh, I just like to say in the short time that I've been studying this, I've seen this field grow tremendously and the amount of clinicians that are coming into it and basic scientists supporting the research is really growing tremendously. And we hosted the second annual metabolic therapeutics conference and had, you know, the Johns Hopkins ketogenic diet team down here to talk and, and many other, uh, we had hundreds of people at it. So there is a lot of interest in this field and I think it's serving people in a tremendous way. And I think whenever you're doing that, people will recognize kind of the value that this therapy brings to them. And I think it's just going to gain more traction and, and get bigger. And I think, you know, just uh, from a recommendation perspective for our viewers who may be interested in looking into this further, even for themselves, 
That is that it's not just a question of adding in the uh, appropriate fats, but you've got to restrict the carbs and sugar uh, yeah. in order to let your body selectively utilize these fats and your endogenous fats available through liver being processed as well to manufacture these ketones that we're talking about and therefore have them available. But it's not going to work when there are, you know, when you continue to give your body the carbohydrates, it's going to preferentially use sugar and carbs. So to make it happen, it's not just the addition of the fat, but it's the restriction of the glucose and the carbs. And what would you say to people who want to explore this further in terms of what they should be looking at, what conference they should go to, or what book should they be reading? Yeah, well, your book, of course, is a great primer. Uh, yeah, and great introduction into, you know, brain health and and the importance of not just macronutrient profile, but food selection, too. Uh, the go-to resource that I usually direct people to, uh, especially clinically, is the Charlie Foundation website. And I think it's a fantastic website. Uh, the Ketogenic Diet Resource has also been, I mean, there's a book on there written by a medical doctor that's a type 1 diabetic that describes the use of the ketogenic diet for type 1 diabetes, which is unheard of, right? So uh, one of my PhD students is a type 1 diabetic and does remarkably well on a ketogenic diet, uh, requires far less insulin and can keep his glucose uh, in tight control using that. And that would be unheard of just, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, so you know, the, keto, the uh, ketogenic diet resource, I think, is a, a great, the, the Charlie Foundation. And I have a website, uh, ketonutrition.org. And on that website, if you click on resources, it will bring you to uh, a list of uh, dietitians and registered dietitians and consultants that can help patients. Uh, there's a, you know, clinical trials are listed there, a number of books, ebooks, and other books that are listed podcasts. Uh, so I pr try to provide, you know, my website as a link to, uh, there's nothing for sale on there. It's just, uh, just information and, but a lot of information that I think can be helpful to your listeners. So again, ketonutrition.org. It should be uh, right at the bottom of your screen. You should see that. Yeah. Dominic, thanks for joining us today. Uh, really, really interesting conversation. And uh, again, thanks for all you do. It's great stuff. Thanks for having me. Appreciate okay. it. Bye for now. Bye-bye. I think uh, you could see that I was very taken by today's interview. What an amazing researcher. What a dedicated uh, individual. Uh, he is exploring, again, the, the real nuts and bolts as to why ketosis matters and the very powerful potential that a ketogenic program has, uh, especially as it relates to the brain, brain function, brain preservation, and even uh, from an interventional perspective in the treatment of existing disease. Well, thanks for joining me on The Empowering Neurologist. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter.